This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. If you build it, they will come. For me to slow down enough to recognize that the power of the experience and the power of the journey is not how far I went, but it's how meaningfully I connected with the people who were doing this work with me along the way. It wasn't until that awareness happened for me that a really shift also occurred in the culture of our organization. And it was deeply uncomfortable. This is Josh Rafoon, and you are listening to the What School Could Be podcast. Before we start the show, please consider joining the rapidly growing What School Could Be global online community. Simply install the What School Could Be app on your smart device or go to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I look forward to seeing you there. Today, my guest is Ayana Verdi. Ayana is an educational leader and mother of two who, with her husband John in 2016, established the Verdi Eco School to provide hands-on educational experiences for children in the historic Ogalee Arts District of Melbourne, Florida. The school quickly grew to become the first K-8 urban farm school in the southeastern United States and will soon expand to include high school learners. John Verdi is the founder of Hey Blue, which works to build relationships between the police and the communities they serve. Hey Blue is woven into the fabric of the Verdi Eco School. In 2019, Ayana was accepted as a Drexel Fund Fellow in support of her work in building a new high school model that incorporates hands-on immersive learning through practical real-world internships. Ayana's educational and professional journey has included studies in both the United States and New Zealand as she pursued a degree in veterinary medicine. Inspired by the nature-based school her son attended in New Zealand, Ayana is committed to cultivating community-based and environmentally aware educational options for children. At the Verdi Eco School's website, we read, Restorative agriculture is a system of growing practices and principles which educates and empowers individuals to learn how to restore our damaged ecosystems. Restorative practices rebuild nutrient-rich soil, increase biodiversity, improve watersheds, and enhance sustainable stewardship. They offer increased vitality and resilience in the communities where the commitment to regenerative agriculture is high. As an urban farm school, the Verdi Eco School is committed to growing resilient food systems, educating the public about food independence, food justice, and working with students to break generations of unsustainable environmental practices. Equally exciting, the Verdi Eco School joined the Mastery Transcript Consortium in early 2020. Ayana is becoming a powerful voice in America for what school could be. And now, here's my conversation with Ayana Verdi. Ayana Verdi, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. 
So we're going to dive deep into the deep end of the pool here, right out of the gate, because I've already uh, introduced you. So let's start here. You were part of a panel organized by Black Lives Matter back in March, I believe, where you talked about challenging the idea that if kids want to be successful, they need to leave and go elsewhere for college or go elsewhere for a career, elsewhere for whatever. And instead, you made the case for place-based and community-based learning and what happens when kids become connected to learning opportunities where they live. So why is it, in your opinion, that there's so much pressure for kids to go elsewhere? Where does that narrative come from? And what happens to children when they immerse their learning in the places where they live and stay where they live? Yeah, it's a wonderful question. So the organization is Black Minds Matter. Oh, and okay, my mistake. <laughs> no worries, no worries. And I think the idea, certainly for, for Black and Brown people and, and certainly where I grew up, is this recognition that the access that you have to incredible opportunity may be limited based upon your your color, your socioeconomic status. And in order to step into a place where we challenge that, we challenge this idea that the place where I live is depressed or the place where I live, the individuals here have never had you know, the opportunity to reach outside, we can shift that thinking to say, well, if I can be empowered to learn, if I can be empowered to build some skills to solve unique challenges in my community, why not? You know, so there's certainly this tension between the dream of getting away from trauma Mm-hmm. The dream of moving away from a space that's maybe not safe and that asks you to see some pain, you know, on, on a daily basis. But I, I think that there's certainly a different experience for individuals in our country, depending on your color, you know, d- depending on where you've grown up. Mm. You know, Ayana, here in Hawaii, where this podcast is based, no matter what your situation is, that pressure is intense. And I think it it may have something to do with the fact that, you know, we're, we're a set of islands and there's this kind of core belief that if, if you don't leave, something's wrong. And I, 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 I've never quite gotten that because there's such a, there's so many rich opportunities here in Hawaii to, you know, go after problems that need to be solved and, you know, so on and so forth. And I, I just wonder, like, in your personal experience, did you feel that pressure? You know, what, what happened in your life and how did how did you experience that? Yeah, I, I mean, we look to the horizon, right? Yeah, there's something there's something better <laughs> happening somewhere else. If I could just get there, yeah. I don't know what it is, but if I could just get there, it will be better. Yeah. I grew up in, in Brownsville, Brooklyn, when Brownsville, Brooklyn was the murder capital of the United States. Mm. So I grew up in a place where everyone who saw any child, the refrain was constantly, you're going to get out of here. Mm. You're going to go somewhere else. You're going to do something great. And my greatness, my ability to to succeed was absolutely predicated upon how far away from Brownsville I I was able to get. Mm. And, you know, as I, as I look back on that, I, I recognize why, 
right? Mm. If a place doesn't feel safe, you, you got to go somewhere else. But, you know, to your point, mm. there's something about this exploration that I think we need to do as humans that indicates to us that you've not succeeded or, you, or you've not reached your potential if you haven't gone somewhere completely different mm. from where you originated. You know, you must experience something completely new and bring your unique vision and perspective somewhere else. And then that's when you've succeeded. Mm-hmm. But I, I think we're challenging that now. And, and we're starting to recognize the, the incredible resource that we have as individuals who are connected to place, mm-hmm. you know, and how rich our perspective is because we're so deeply connected to it. No one else wants a place to succeed more than the people who've mm. grown up in it yeah. and stepped on the soil and you have memories of your your family and your your parents and your friends being there. So for us who are the most invested and connected to our places, it's most important for us to go back to learn and to come back and, and enrich the soil, you yeah. know, enrich our place. That's awesome. So, so perfect segue to the to the next question, which is, I've had guests, quite a few of them, who lived professional lives, engineers, sports science, politics, and so on, before becoming educators. And in my case, I was a chef and then a hotel manager before becoming a teacher. Your journey includes studies in both the United States and New Zealand, where I gather you pursued a degree in veterinary medicine and you operated a canine wellness spa in New York City. <laughs> so what is the story behind your interest in the health of animals? And in, in what ways did those studies and the career you were tracking towards possibly come to inform your later life? Yeah, we were we were looking to the horizon, right? <laughs> there you we had, go. had to get as far away as I, I possibly could. New Zealand is a long ways. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the idea for me from a very young age was to care for animals. I used to collect stray animals in my community. So if there if there was if there were ever a dog that was unattended, hmm. a cat, a bird, it took up residence in my home. <laughs> so I, I knew that becoming a veterinarian is what I wanted to do. Mm. I didn't recognize just how long mm. and and challenging that road is. So during the time when I began to consider where I was going to go off to study veterinary medicine, mm. I had the incredible idea that I could start a pet services business to make some money while I was going to school. Mm. And it started as a, a dog walking service <laughs> in, right. in New York City and, and grew within three years to be the first holistic wellness spa for dogs, mm. uh, which was really, really interesting. And I led that business for, for five years before I became pregnant with my son. Mm-hmm. And shortly after my son was born, we went ahead and applied to continue my studies in New Zealand. I really wanted to work with large mammals and, and maybe marine mammals. And mm, New okay. Zealand felt like an incredible place to do that. Yeah, And I was accepted and we sold everything and jumped on a plane and... Wow. <laughs> Where we lived in New Zealand. <laughs> and so what's the story behind, like, how far did you go in that? Where, where was the transition, you know, away from veterinary medicine? Yeah, it, the, the transition came when living abroad in New Zealand, I, I became very sick and, and was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder. Hmm. And not being a citizen of New Zealand meant that 
my health care and costs were were out of pocket. Yeah. <laughs> and and it quickly became unsustainable for our family. So we needed to return to the United States so that mm. I could be sure that mm. that I was healthy and and then consider what the next steps would be. Mm. But during the time we were in New Zealand, my son had the opportunity to kind of begin his, you know, educational journey. And then he started a kindy there and mm, okay. it was nature-based, primarily outdoors. And I'd never seen anything like it. There was a workspace outside with real hammers and screws and saws and, you know, engaging in risk-taking and climbing in trees and mm. raising worms. And it was incredible. You know, mm. the school that he went to was led by several women who were Maori, right? So the mm. the indigenous individuals and in, uh, the indigenous people, original people of New Zealand. And they shared with my son that there's a, a wonderful, soulful belief where you can't really learn if you don't have your feet directly in contact with the soil. Mm. And my son took that literally and every day when he went to kindy, he took off his shoes, he lined them up outside of the door, and mm. learning began. Mm. And he was so taken by this idea that he could not put his shoes back on. <laughs> so wow. everywhere we went, it was, <laughs> well, mom, I want to learn about this place and it won't happen if I put my shoes back on. Oh. So, you know, we, we've taken that experience with us mm. now, but I, I also learned that it's it's a very interesting cultural piece of living in New Zealand where mm -hmm. many people don't wear their shoes. And I mm -hmm. thought it was just a beautiful piece of the connection to the earth there. Um, mm -hmm. That's acknowledged in a really physical way. You know, that's, I'm thinking back to your wellness spa and I'm, I'm real, you know, I have two cats, Ayana, that I love. I just love so much. And I'm re <laughs> I'm realizing now that for the last 12 years, I've been running a wellness spa for cats at our house. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's exactly what they've been experiencing. I just never had a way to frame it. You know, that's that's perfect. So so kind of a follow-up question is when when I was in school, formal schooling here in Hawaii, I had no contact with animals ever in the in that kind of formal schooling. But outside of school, I had extensive contact with animals. So I think the follow-up question is what gets lost when animals are not part of a child's development and what is gained when they are part of a child's development? Yeah, well, so those are some of our first connections with empathy, mm. right? With, with understanding how the things we do can affect another being. You know, there's this incredible awareness that arises when when children have the opportunity to begin their development, these formative experiences alongside that of an animal. You know, another being whose language you don't necessarily share, mm. But you have to learn really quickly if you want to communicate what they're trying to say to you, mm. right? So what's their body language? What is it that they need? Um, and it's such incredible practice for children who are also learning to master the most effective ways to communicate. And, and I think the absence of that is the absence in some way of mm. an early opportunity to build empathy, mm. right? When I engage in this action, this is how it impacts this living being. It's such a powerful connection to make. And, and I wonder 
if as human beings, we weren't making those connections, if we weren't all already so deeply connected to the animals that we share the earth with, how profound mm. would our ability be to even make connections with each other, mm. right? It's kind of mm-hmm. like we, we get that really intense practice <laughs> yeah. with animals, you know, to give us a, a primer for what it'll be like to, to continue to engage with other humans. <laughs> right, right. You know, when I was growing up, I, w- I raised all kinds of animals in this sort of three-acre, crazy, wild place that we lived on the rural side of Oahu. And I raised ducks. And I'm, you're making me think about, I had a nice flock of ducks going. And then one day, I accidentally left the door open, or it was actually just sort of a side gate to an area where they where they existed and they up and left and never came back. And I I still remember the hurt in my heart about Mm. like, why did they leave? Did I, you know, was I not a good person to them? You know, what's the Mm. story there? But I really, I really hear you about the empathy part. And I just wonder, you know, this is something I've never talked about with any previous guest that, that there are all of these opportunities that are sometimes sitting right out there that we don't know are there. That's yeah. that's just a, a great thing. So kind of along the again on on the same along the same lines and and as you were growing up, you again, as you've described, grew up on the Lower East Side of New York City and attended Brooklyn Technical High School, which is yeah. the nation's largest specialized public high school for science technology, Mm -hmm. engineering, and mathematics. And I have two questions about this time in your life. So Brooklyn Tech's mission is, and I quote, to inspire and challenge potentially high achievers to maximize their talents for you for the benefit <laughs> of society. End quote. So, in I'm, I'm, I think the phrasing of that language is extraordinary. But mm. in what ways did your time there come to shape your eventual philosophy of ed- education as it stands now in your life? Yeah, I, I think that was the beginning of a realization that traditional schooling was not as effective for me, Mm -hmm. it had lost its luster. So in New York City, there are, at least at the time, there were, I believe, four specialized high schools Mm -hmm. and you had to go and take a test, right? And it's highly competitive. Um, And so you show up one day with thousands of other students to file into Stuyvesant High School, which is on the west side, the lower, the lower west side of Manhattan. And you get funneled into these rooms and you sit down with a bunch of people you've never seen before and you take this test. Mm. And weeks later in your school, they'll announce the individuals who scored high enough to attend one of New York City's specialized high schools. And I was able to get into Brooklyn Tech. And, you know, there was so much to do about this idea of you've gotten into this specialized high school, everything is going to be great. And the first day I go to school, there were thousands of children, Mm. thousands. I I think that there were 5,000 kids in my school and it's a huge building and you're absolutely in awe, you know, right? As you step into this place and, and recognize that, oh, I have made it. This is this incredible place and the journey to the rest of my life has begun. But what my experience was is that if you are a high achieving student, if you are a student who does really, really well on tests, that there are schools that have crafted this formula, Mm. right? And and this formula says, if we give you these classes, we give you these tests, 
we will put you on a path to apply to these colleges and universities so that you can do X type of jobs. And I was really, really not excited about any of it. Mm. I was so surprised that there wasn't really an opportunity for open exploration. Mm. I was so surprised that there, there was not this encouragement to try as many things as you possibly could. Take this time to discover what you enjoy don't really think so much necessarily about college university because this is your time to joyfully engage in all of these opportunities that are available to you. Mm. It was, you have no time. You must take these classes right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it, and it just kind of sucked all the joy out of it mm. for me. So I think that was the beginning of a realization that we could be doing school differently, especially for students who are so excited and motivated to explore and discover and try new experiences and, and live them through. So it was, it was a turning point for me with my own education where mm. I think I became really disillusioned with mm. the journey. So of course that begs the question, why did, you know, why in the world were you expecting something different? You know, <laughs> right. I mean, what, what is it? No, I mean, like what in your background brought you to that moment where you looked around and said, Ooh, there's something missing here. Like, yeah. right? What is that? What happened in your early life that brought you to that moment? Yeah, I think that it was just this idea that it's a specialized school. Mm. You know, you you will be able <laughs> to do all of these special, incredible things. And, and I guess I'd built it up to, to be something that it could not be, right? Yeah. Our system is still constrained by the need to serve thousands of students. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not set up to create individualized, customized pathways of discovery and exploration. Although we try, mm. right? We, we, we do try. And I, I, I didn't know the questions to ask then. Yeah. And, you know, now as a, an adult, certainly looking back and thinking differently about that experience, I'm sure there was so much more that I could have taken out of it. Mm. But at the time, it, it did a lot to knock my faith in, mm. in the system as it stood. Mm -hmm. So second question is, you told me, your most intense learning experiences happened during your summers living on campus at Columbia University and participating mm -hmm. in Upward Bound programs. So what is Upward Bound and what were those intense experiences? Yeah, so Upward Bound was a summer program, a residential summer program for students who were first generation and college bound, right? So students who would mm. be the first individuals in their family to attend college and university. And the entire program is centered around this idea of immersing you in the college university experience so that you're prepared for what this incredible life journey will look like for you. And those were my opportunities to discover and explore. That was where joyful learning really happened for me, where I could take lots of different courses. I was able to speak with college professors, go and sit in a university laboratory and go into Columbia University's library. It was an incredible set of experiences for me. And I think probably my summers at Columbia University and Upward Bound were what kept me interested enough in the educational journey during those years to complete it. <laughs> mm, okay. Was, was there any like one experience in particular that you remember that was like just magic where it really, really happened? 
Mm. You know, for me, honestly, it was every summer taking the train from Brooklyn up to 116th Street Mm. in Manhattan and getting off of the train stop at 116th and coming up right in front of Columbia University Mm. was, I I can almost feel it now. It's just Mm. this incredible sensation of being in a place where incredible things can happen hmm. and being able to take my bag of things, you know, my, my meager belongings, right. As, as a teenager right. and walk into a dormitory where real people, you know, in my mind, real people were studying great things yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to do great things and, and step out into the horizon uh, of the world. It was just, just being there hmm. and having that opportunity is what stands out for mm-hmm. me. But all of the experiences there, the learning experiences were really cultivated to, to get you to ask really exciting, engaging questions and, and mm-hmm. take insights back with you, you know, yeah. your next year to school. You know, this might seem like a wacky question, but did those experiences, I mean, were they almost like a human wellness spa that you, mm. that you walked into? Like everybody was checking out and trying to be empathetic with other people. There was inquiry, there was wonder, like, that, that it really was a spa for learning, for, for wellness, for lifelong life and learning? Yeah, you know, I guess you could center it that <laughs> way. Certainly it does, it, when I look at it now, it, it does kind of have the ring of a retreat to mm. it, right? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> just bring yourself, your, your meals are included. <laughs> mm. Here's the bed for you and some books to curl up with in the evenings. I think that that would be an incredible way to describe that experience definitely definitely healing in a way right mm-hmm. you know coming out of coming out of the regular school year as a high school student and the and the tumult and, and chaos of being a teenager and then stepping onto that campus and taking a breath mm-hmm. and and filling myself with with incredible learning experiences i think could definitely be classified mm. as, as as a wellness experience <laughs> so that so that's a bit of a preview to where we're going next which is going to be your school which i think maybe we've found another way to frame the verdi eco school <laughs> as, a, as a wellness class so so hey everyone stay with us we'll be right back with more questions for ayana verdi hey there Are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi friends, this is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Everyone, we are back with Ayana Verdi, the founder of the Verdi Eco School in the historic Ogali Arts District of Melbourne, Florida. So let's jump into the story of the Verdi Eco School. 
It started just like the One Stone School in Idaho, which I featured in a previous episode, as an enrichment program or programs for homeschoolers, and then became a K-8 urban farm school. So, sorry, this is a multi-part question here, so bear with me. What is the story of how once you and your husband, John, moved to Florida, a place called the Indian River Lagoon became the focus of your enrichment programs, exploration and inquiry. And what is the story of creating replicas of First Nations tools in ceramic Mm. classes at local education centers and art museums? And then the last part is, how did all of this, along with a garden project and much more, become the tapestry we know today as the Verdi Eco School? Yeah, that's a great series of questions. (laughs) For the first part of that, I was definitely inspired by my son, who, Mm. you know, still needed to take his shoes off in order to learn, be in contact Mm. with the earth, no matter where we were. Mm. And we ended up in Central Florida because my husband John's father lived in Port St. Lucie, which is not far from where we are here in O'Galley. And we arrived in Florida thinking that. This would be a great place to live and begin our journey as a young family. Initially started in Miami and enrolled our son in a a private school there. And it was just not a great experience for us. Mm. So we moved a bit further north to central Florida and stumbled across Brevard County because it had the fastest growing population of homeschoolers in the nation at the time. Yeah. And we thought, oh, well, you know, if if we're going to strike out, you know, from traditional schooling and consider different ways to create incredible learning experiences for our son and our family, we can't be in better company than Mm. (laughs) a place where where parents are choosing to innovate on their own. Uh, So we, we came to Melbourne and, and we're looking at homes and the beachside, some of the barrier islands here, came over a causeway from the beachside and just came into this incredible historic district, which is the, the O'Galley Arts District. Mm. And we saw a sign for a plant camp. And my son had been asking for a garden and, you know, we'd done an awful job of putting some pots together, you know, outside <laughs> out to give him a garden at the apartment where we were living. We said, you know, it, it may be great to join, give him this experience of jumping in with other kids to, to see what plant science is all about. Mm-hmm. And that connection led us to two individuals in the arts district who were hoping to begin a community garden. Wow. And one was a, a botanist who had just come back from planting sustainable gardens in Belize. Wow. And another was a, a local artist who had just come back from traveling Europe, selling his art, but wanted to be more firmly rooted in the place where he'd grown up. Wow. And, you know, having conversations with them and, and connecting to them and joining this plant camp brought me to joining their effort to start the first community garden mm. in the O'Galley Arts District. So mm. we, we approached a landowner who had a, a quarter acre of space that they weren't using and said, hey, how do you feel about this becoming an educational garden? And they said, sure. <laughs> And, and then from that were, was born, you know, the very first programs of the Verde Eco School. Mm-hmm. And there were about 10 tree stumps and a, and a chalkboard. 
and our botanist friend. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and we began building a garden and, and, and doing that work with children in the community. Wow, that's just remarkable. And I'm I'm thinking, you know, there have been a number of conversations in the What's Could Be community about having a so-called motley crew, you know, it's that mm. it's that group of people that you start to gather together that are on a mission together. It's a bit like maybe here in the Hawaiian culture, like you're on a you know, on a voyaging canoe and you've got a crew that you're putting together and you sail off. And it sounds like that's what was happening. There was a very natural and organic, I'm sure there were challenges, but natural mm. and kind of organic process of you coming together as a small community and then imagining what if, like what if we did this or what if we did that, right? Absolutely. You know, and that at the time I didn't know, but that's, the beginning of this idea of of thinking with intentional design, right? Mm. Starting with empathy. Yeah. What do the people here want? What is this community doing? What do they need more of? Mm. How can we bring people together and connect in a really human way? You know, so in the very beginning, we didn't recognize that's what we were doing, but we knew we wanted to deeply connect to other people. And we wanted to deeply connect to this place, Mm. you know, and the garden gave us an opportunity to do that. And especially the momentum of doing something that hadn't been done before. Mm. And right across the street from the garden is the Indian River Lagoon. And the Indian River Lagoon is one of the most biodiverse estuaries in the entire country. Mm -hmm. So there were these really tangible, powerful connections between how what we do on land directly affects what happens in the water, right? Mm -hmm. These ecosystems are connected. So we couldn't do one without engaging fully in the other. So our programs just continue to get deeper Mm -hmm. and more rich and Mm -hmm. more profoundly connected to the people, the animals, Mm -hmm. the institutions, the businesses, you know, the idea around crafting replicas of First Nations tools was born from a partnership with the Florida Public Archaeology Network and an incredible program that they have where they bring actual First Nations tools for children to touch Mm. and hold and understand that, you know, the land that you're walking on right now was once walked by the Ace people or the Tamukuan people. And these were the technology that they used. How can we replicate this? And what are other examples of technology? So that's where we start our history for every student. Mm. It's who were the people who lived here in this place and how did they exist in this place? Mm. And what kind of technology did they use? And if we replicated it now, would it be helpful to us? Mm. You know, so these incredible opportunities to build empathy, mm-hmm. to build perspective about the land that they're standing on, and to acknowledge that there were other people here mm. <laughs> who lived in harmony with this earth for a really long time, but also that there's so much incredible, beautiful knowledge that mm-hmm. that we can step into that allows us to recreate experiences and give children an opportunity to consider what they want to explore next. Mm. And I think, you know, Aeon, if, if there's anything I would want our listeners to 
come away with here. It's that if you're thinking about doing a garden project or if you're thinking about connecting with a estuary that's near your school, don't mm. worry too much about answering all the why questions about why mm. do this because there's so much you don't know will happen, but why not just trust that something will happen that's good, right? I mean, you, you, you did the garden project, but you didn't know exactly how it was going to unfold over time and look at how it unfolded over time. You just move mm -hmm. forward. You know, so we're often held up by the idea that we have to know exactly what the outcomes are. We have to measure, you know, whatever it is that we're doing. And that, that's just, it gives me goosebumps, you know, listening to you describe the story of how that tapestry really unfolded. And so kind of along the same lines, I had a lengthy conversation about you and your school with Susanna Johnson, the awesome human who for a year has been directing the growth of the What School Could Be global online community. And she talks mm -hmm. about real challenges you faced trying to find the right place, the right culture, the right context to raise mm -hmm. and educate your children and realize your personal dreams and aspirations. So as much as you are comfortable saying, what were and continue to be those challenges and how did something called empathy for inclusion, which you kind of already explained, but become the North Star and the basis of the Verde Eco School. this incredible discomfort that comes with doing something that's not been done before. Right. And it is totally tied into this idea of, I don't know where it will go. Mm. It's an incredibly uncomfortable place for a human being to stand in, right? That idea of embracing ambiguity, yes. right? Like knowing I'm going to take a journey, I don't know where I'm going to end up, but I'm going to embrace the process. Mm. And find wonder in the product. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, you know, they're, they're in that process. You know, this idea of learning by doing means that we're constantly failing forward. Constantly, over and over again, you're failing in order to learn. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, you must be willing to engage in really deep work with other people. Mm -hmm. Because you cannot walk a journey alone where you're trying to influence a community to learn a new language, to explore in a different way, mm -hmm. to discover things that might mean they're going to be uncomfortable while they're, while they're doing it and making mistakes with you without having a really strong realization that I must start with empathy. Mm -hmm. I must start with listening. And I must always come back to this idea of, of reflection right? It's, oh, it's like this cyclical process. It's let me listen. Mm -hmm. I'm going to hear you. We're going to ideate and test together. Then mm -hmm. we're going to reflect and then we're going to do the whole process mm -hmm. all over again. And initially as someone who wanted to jump in, you know, feet first, not knowing where it was going to go, start that garden, mm -hmm. start these programs. If you build it, they will come. Yeah. For me to slow down enough to recognize that the power of the experience and the power of the journey is not how far I went, but it's how meaningfully I connected with the people who were doing this work with me along the way. It wasn't until that awareness happened for me that a really shift also occurred in the culture of mm -hmm. our organization. Mm -hmm. And it was deeply uncomfortable and 
coming into the pandemic where everything was turned upside down, right? The, the world as we knew it was was no longer the world. Yeah. <laughs> We're living in this new landscape, in this new place. Um, and, and it forced us to be nimble in a way that we'd not yet had to be, but were small enough to do and, and practice and test things that others couldn't. We had to learn that without deeply connecting to each other as a community, without listening to each other, we weren't going to make it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was incredibly difficult. We said goodbye to about, at one point, like 60% of our school family. Mm-hmm. And it it was devastating. Yeah, It was devastating. And it, and it wasn't until we pulled back and settled back into this place of starting with, I hear you. Yeah. Where do we go next that everything shifted? Yeah. I'm going to come at it from a slightly different direction using something that you wrote. I'm going to quote you. We have found it incredibly challenging to appropriately communicate EcoSchool's approach with prospective parents. As the first Mm. place and project-based urban farm school in the southeastern United States, we have received reactions that range from derision to disbelief. So derision (laughs) about what? Disbelief about what? Mm. The language that we speak in this region of the United States is not a common one. Yeah. So entering into our community with really excited conversations about place-based education and project-based learning and an urban farm meant nothing. Yeah. You're speaking a foreign (laughs) language. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, so it was very, very interesting to recognize that we have brought a philosophy of learning to our community that not only hadn't been done here before, but was completely alien. You know, so we had to certainly step into a place where we struggled to not feel as though we needed to justify what we do Mm. and justify its relevance, you know, provide evidence for, for the efficacy of this type of learning. And we had to learn to be comfortable with just doing it Mm. and sharing the story with individuals who were ready to hear it. Mm. But that also meant recognizing that you know, going back to this idea of communicating with animals and reading yeah. their body language and, and <laughs> understanding exactly what it is that they're trying to tell you, that if I did not find a shared language, if we did not find a way to communicate that people could understand, we would not be able to grow. Mm-hmm. So we we had to think about ways to offer individuals ramps and bridges into this philosophy. We had to open up our gardens and create a community space Mm -hmm. and offer education and restorative agriculture and and regenerative growing practices. We had to offer opportunities for parents to know what conscious discipline is Mm -hmm. and take parent education with us. We had to have discussions and talks about the types of books we read and why we begin with building First Nations tools and why do we care to offer a land acknowledgement at every morning meeting every day? Why is this language so important and how is it intentional Mm. and once we began to do that we began to see a ripple Mm. within our community where it wasn't just the language that we were using here on our campus but we were starting to be able to share this language with individuals who were coming to see us for the first time but had learned somehow 
what this philosophy of learning was, and they were interested in learning more. Right. And so at the very least, you have a way of communicating with everybody, that everybody has a way to communicate together. You may not all agree on every concept or every process or practice or whatever, but at least you're in that process. That's, wow. And that's just so amazing. Okay. So kind of along the same lines, and this is, you know, the last question before we go to our second break, but I'm going to read into the record here, a statement on your website, and then I want to ask you a question about it. So restorative agriculture is a system of growing practices and principles which educates and empowers individuals to learn how to restore our damaged ecosystems. Restorative practices rebuild nutrient-rich soil, increase biodiversity, improve watersheds, and enhance sustainable stewardship. They offer increased vitality and resilience in the communities where the commitment to regenerative agriculture is high. As an urban farm school, the Verdi Eco School is committed to growing resilient food systems, educating the public about food independence and food justice, and working with students to break generations of unsustainable environmental practices. So this is a beautifully articulated group of words, Ayana. Mm -hmm. So what was the design process that ultimately gave birth to the prototype that was the Verdi Eco School. And really what I'm after here is take our listeners behind the scenes as you and your husband and your partners did the hard design work. Like, was it post-it notes? Was it whiteboards, Google Docs, (laughs) right? Like take us into the weeds for a minute and give us a sense of how that unfolded over time. Yeah, it began with the community. Mm. It began with really, really, truly listening deeply and and working with people here in this place and hearing what they wanted and what they needed. You know, we're, we're here in the middle of what's considered a food desert. You know, there, you cannot walk to a garden that's growing food here other than our own Mm. or before, before we'd help to coordinate the community garden as well. There are no fresh produce markets within walking distance. We are in a space where if we as the community are not doing this work, then we're not having access to the health that comes with eating fresh locally grown food. Mm, (laughs) Um, and And we're also not having the opportunity to educate our children on what a healthy system looks like, right? Food isn't grown in a supermarket. It comes from somewhere. And how do those practices in terms of where we get our food from influence how we interact with our community, how we interact with our place and how can we be healthy if we're not adding nutrients back to the soil. And when I say nutrients, I'm thinking of not just like the fertilizer and the compost that we put back into the earth, but just the attention that the earth needs in order to sustain us to walk upon it. So it, it was really when we began with helping to, to build a community garden, it was just meeting people. Mm -hmm. It was talking to people and understanding what they wanted to know and what they wanted to learn. It was 12 hour days with my one-year-old daughter strapped to my back Mm -hmm. and my five-year-old son and my husband up to our knees in mulch and mushroom compost, 
you know, with pickaxes, breaking apart compacted soil that hadn't been planted in for decades Mm. and doing that with people alongside us saying, I've been aching for this type of connection. Mm. I've been wanting to learn how to do this my entire life. And this is the first time that I've been able to do it. Just recognizing how deeply people want to be connected to the soil really brought us to a recognition that it needed to be a foundational piece of our school. You know, Mm. it's really difficult to say, hey, connect to your place if you don't have to become deeply physically entrenched in your place, Mm. right? It's really easy to leave and go somewhere else if you've never had a moment to be completely enveloped by the place where you live. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's easy to go somewhere else, but when you're so connected to it in the way that we are and the way that our students are, my goodness, we, we realized how special that one piece was to building community and knew that everything else needed to be built around it. So it sounds like that all came out of a, a massive commitment to a massive empathy interview process. Yeah. But you didn't just do it by sitting down and talking to people. You were doing things. And at the same time, you were gathering information along the way. And all of that information, again, if we're talking about design thinking, all that information becomes kind of a pool that you can start to pull ideas from. But these are ideas that are owned by the community. And and that's very, very different. Wow. Wow. That's just, again, I'm just flipping out here over here in Honolulu because (laughs) this is like such a process. But we do have to take a break. So everyone stay with us. We'll be right back with more questions for Ayana Verdi. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at UNR. ULR.com. Mahalo. Hey everyone, we are back with Ayana Verdi, the founder of the Verdi Eco School and the first K through eight urban farm school in the southeastern United States. So Ayana, for a moment, I want to dig into the faculty and staff at the Verdi Eco School, and I have two questions. One prompted by an interview you did with Education Reimagined and the other prompted by my surfing your website's team page. (laughs) So here goes. So in an episode last year, I asked an elementary school principal in Hawaii about how she managed to have 30 out of 30 of her faculty, quote, on the same page in a very Mm. serious way, like really on the same page when it comes to teaching and learning. And her response had to do with super intentional hiring practices on the one hand, 
and some very intentional coaching, mentoring, guiding, and training on the other. So as the founder and leader of your school, what mm -hmm. skills, habits, and dispositions are you looking for in a teacher candidate? And to what extent could you take any committed and resilient adult and develop them into a member of your faculty or staff? It's mm, a great question. Well, I think everything starts with culture. Mm. You know, I, I think there's a, a writer, Peter Drucker, who says culture eats strategy for breakfast. Every time. <laughs> <laughs> and I, it, it, there's nothing more true, right? It, pulling together a, a group of dedicated, committed individuals who are united by a common belief will change the world. It, it doesn't matter what great plan you have, it's the people, right? And the people united that make things happen. So the qualities that we look for and that are important to cultivate here and build on, and, you know, we've learned over time which ones tend to push someone up in their, in their ability to, to succeed and, and grow. Mm -hmm. And the number one quality is adaptability. Uh, you know, this, wow. this ability to be flexible, to embrace discomfort as a necessary factor for mm. growth is an incredible character trait to have. And it's rare. Yeah. We've learned that it's very, very rare, especially for adults, especially for highly educated adults. We learn how to do things and we become creatures of habit, right? It becomes very difficult for us to step out of this muscle memory that we've crafted to say, I can do something different. I'm going to learn how to do something different. This day is not going to go the same way as the day before. And that's okay. Yeah. It's really difficult for adults to do. So adaptability is the number one trait and it needs to be something that's there. And then we build hmm. with that individual. And our process acknowledges that while we're all on the same team, we're part of the same school family, we're not all at the same place in our learning journey, mm. right? We're all at really different places and it's our support of each other, intentional mentorship, really personalized growth trajectories that bring us to a shared team with really different skills, really diverse perspectives that create this place that is authentic for adults to grow alongside students. Mm. You know, there's also this idea of the educator as the sage, yeah. right? Like the educator as the encyclopedia, the one person who knows all things and you can stop and ask them and they will know. Well, we work really hard to ask educators to release that and to help educators to be really comfortable with saying, I don't know, mm. let's find out together. And when we can cultivate that skill, we find that adults are more willing to let students lead, mm. you know? So there are these really, what's, what seem and feel like really simple ideas, right? Like stand alongside a student, let yeah. them lead, be adaptable, be flexible. Yeah, sure. I can do <laughs> all of that. Yeah. And then you stand in it and you recognize as an adult that what it really means that you have to do is release control. Mm. Wow. And it's, a, it's really difficult for us to do. So we get really, really excited when we meet people who come in 
on a trial day. And the only thing that we give them when they come in on a trial day is we say, we want you to lead two learning experiences that you're super passionate about. Hmm. You're going to have two groups of students that you can do it with. You can choose any classroom on our campus or a garden space anywhere. And we don't tell them anything else Hmm. because we want to understand how do you respond stepping into being immersed in an environment where you might not know what's going to happen next. Mm, wow. So, you know, we kind of throw them in, into <laughs> the deep into end of the, the pool. Fire, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a beautiful thing to see happen because what must happen for the individual who is able to flex and be uncomfortable and still be open to learning while they're uncomfortable is that they have to follow the children. Yeah. Absolutely. They have to say to the child next to them, so what are we doing next? <laughs> where are we going? And it's, an, it's a beautiful piece to see happen. <laughs> wow. Okay, so so we, we don't have time to talk about all of your faculty members, but one of them really jumped out at me. Her name is Nakia Rice, and mm. she is a marine biologist, and she designed and implemented a sea turtle preservation society education yes. center, which is fantastic. So how did Nakia fit your image or profile of a Verdi Eco School teacher? And what specific magic has she brought to your many programs? <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, Nakia would love that we're, that we're talking about her right now. And <laughs> what stands out to me about Nakia is that when Nakia first came to work with us, she just had her daughter. Yeah. And she came to work with us with... Nakia strapped to the front of her body and taught classes. Wow. And that was, to me, the most incredible example of adaptability and flexibility that there ever could be. That you could step into a space fully ready to engage with students with a baby strapped to the front of your body. Because you never know what's going to happen next. Absolutely. (laughs) So that that was an, an incredible place for me to be to say like, this person is going to be with us forever. Right? Mm. If they can, if Nakia can do this, she can do anything. Mm. But since Nakia joined us, Nakia has built out our place-based program in partnership with Brevard Zoo. So the Brevard Zoo is the largest community built zoo in the world. Mm. And we knew that we wanted to partner with the zoo to run our high school science program. So we, we knew we wanted students to be immersed in a zoo campus for a significant portion of their week to engage in experiences like animal behavior and wildlife ecology. And Nakia was the one who was willing to take her incredible, vast experience and build out this incredible partnership with the zoo. And we're the first school to have partnered with our zoo in such a way. So we're really, really proud of of the partnership. And Nakia's insight and and excitement around science Mm. make her consistently an educator who all of the students want to be with. They call her the real Right. Miss Nakia is real. I can talk to Miss Nakia because she has a really very, very special quality about her and an excitement about science. So, yeah, she's been instrumental in building our science programs and, and building partnerships that that really make us a, a community campus. We, we really do view our community as our school. Mm-hmm. And she's taken that to 
you know, the 10th degree. That's fantastic. So three cheers to you, Nikia, because I know at some point you're going to hear this. You know, there yes. isn't enough time. There was there was one other person on your staff, one other faculty member, Angela Lavernia. Am I pronouncing that Lavernia. right? Yes. Lavernia. Yeah. She wrote a beautiful blog post, which is at your school site about, you know, teaching Langston Hughes. And, you know, I just tell our listeners, mm-hmm. <laughs> go to verdieecoschool.org and go to that particular post because it's really worth reading. Absolutely. Yes. So, okay, because I was working, obviously, methodically through your school's website, I landed on the Harvest Shop page last. But, okay. oh, <laughs> oh my, I felt like I had wandered into a magic grocery store. It was like on, <laughs> on the shelves were student-made candles, you know, especially made T-shirts, designed loaves of bread, jewelry, infused oils, and much, much more. So my question is, at what point in your design process did the Harvest Shop make its appearance? And what function does it serve in your overall vision and mission for the Verdi Eco School? Yeah, I would say that the Harvest Shop started pretty early, but it it didn't start on the site for quite some time. Mm. So we are also, we helped to coordinate the first indie market in the O'Galley Arts District. It's called Fleagad. Mm. And and that came from our students who said like, it's not your, it's not your grandma's flea market. So they called it (laughs) Fleagad. And their idea was one, to create an opportunity for connection. Absolutely. But because our school is project-based, because we're growing things, students were constantly having the opportunity to create products Mm. that they wanted to share with the community. Mm. So Fleagad, this market became a place where students could share all of the incredible things that they were making, their knowledge about their place with the community. Mm. So students, even from our first year, were, you know, crafting artisan batches of soap and, you know, seed-saving amaranth varieties and pineapple and the market started to become restrictive. They wanted to be able to reach people (laughs) all over the country. They wanted to send things to their grandma in Seattle. And, you know, so the Harvest Shop Online was born and the idea behind it is to certainly amplify awareness of what our students are doing, but also to show the students themselves this incredible accomplishment. You made this, you created this, this came from you and now you're sharing it with the world. And it also serves certainly as a fundraiser. We're able to support our programs with the incredible things that that we're able to share with our community. So the Harvest Shop is is almost like a, a little bit of a portfolio of project mm. products <laughs> yeah. that we can share with the world in addition to sharing the things that we're really proud of here from our campus. That's awesome. And so along the same lines, perhaps one of the most important new initiatives for your school is a partnership with Mastery Transcript Consortium. So what does MTC and its community of schools mean to you and the Verdi Eco School going forward? Mm, it means being a part of a network of individuals, of schools that are doing the work to change the way we view student success student growth and its value in moving from high school to whatever happens after high school. Mm. There 
must be more than one way that a diverse population of students can show their growth and their journey with authenticity. And being a part of MTC allows us to do that. Hmm. I would like us to imagine here, Ayana, that you know there is this person sitting off to the side who's, let's say, a college admissions officer, and we want to put in front of that officer one of your students, and that student is going to say, "Well, I was the product manager for you know <laughs> the the harvest shop at the Verdi Eco School, and I managed all of their e-commerce, and that's my artifact that goes mm-hmm. into the transcript." Like that's what we're really talking about here is Mm -hmm. the opportunity for students to present a wide array of artifacts of learning and the Mastery Transcript Consortium is moving. That's what it's moving forward, right? Absolutely. And and the idea for schools like Verde Eco School and schools that are that are certainly pushing the bar in terms of what educational innovation look like for students, it's an opportunity for each of these individuals to say really clearly what are the skills that they've cultivated that are of value yes. for them to say it, for them to show this is what I want you to see. I can lead teams. I've done research. Yeah. I've created a business. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm an artist. I'm a writer. And here's my proof. And I didn't have to wait until I finished high school to complete all of these incredible opportunities. i I'm doing it now. Yeah. I'm a business owner right now. <laughs> right, right. You know, I'm I'm comparing and contrasting the behavior of primates at one of the largest uh, the largest community built zoo in the nation along graduate students. They can show that now. We must give them a platform and a format to show all of the incredible things that they're doing to to really accurately give these students a chance to go in the direction that they need to go. Right. Not what a number says, not what a, a letter grade says, but what their skills and abilities say. Yeah, that's fantastic. So two more questions before we finish this awesome conversation today. So for pretty much my entire life, I have struggled with how I handle criticism and how I have let the critics, some of them quite mm. cruel, frankly, get under my skin. And so I was quite moved, Anna, by a blog you wrote at VerdiEcoSchool.org titled Worst School Ever. And mm-hmm. I, I wonder if you can share with our listeners the story behind that blog post. But before you do, I'm going to read the final four sentences of your post. So I'm going to quote you. Mm-hmm. To our critics, we see you. We hear you. We've saved you seats to the arena. If we're going to be seen, we'll need an audience, unquote. So what is, what is the story behind that post? Oh, the story behind that post is a, is, is a heavy one. So mm. I, I happened to stumble across like a, you know, social media mommy group thread where individuals were asking about nature-based, project-based or place-based schools in our area. And our school came up and someone just shared those three words. With wow. you know, with the period, with the period at the end of each, each word, one. you know, worst period school period <laughs> ever period, and I read it and like my, my whole body was suffused with like emotion and and yeah. heat. It was, it was it's an awful thing to see, and I think in the blog post I even say you know I I engaged in that in a very cringeworthy exchange in a desire to share 
the wonderful people and the wonderful community that's here, the wonderful work that we're doing. And I just made it worse. Right. Right. <laughs> there, right. Was, there was, you know, there, there's no, there's no right in the mommy group world. <laughs> in yeah, social no. media. Yeah. And then I realized because of the emotional place that I was in, I realized that I was so taken by all of the criticisms or deficits that our school model could have Mm -hmm. that I was not taking enough time to think about all of the effort and energy and sacrifice that all of the individuals who are part of this community have given to ensure that it does succeed, that it does survive, that Mm -hmm. it serves as a model to other school founders, as an inspiration to other schools and other states and communities. And it was one of those moments where it's, what are you doing? Yeah. Why are you spending so much time thinking about and arguing with those who are not interested in what you're doing, mm-hmm. who don't understand your language. Yeah. You must take the time to spend your energy and pour it into the people who do, mm. because those are the ones who will continue to inspire you and share their energy with you and your community to continue to see this school grow and influence this community in positive ways. Mm. So it was definitely a shift from this idea of the critic determines yeah. the trajectory of our school to the individuals who are already in the boat with you, you know, and paddling, yeah. you know, have been paddling with you. Those are the individuals who determine the trajectory. Those who, those are the people who put everything all in. So it, it was a shift for me to recognize I, I'm all in here. This community is all in. My energy goes all into those people. Mm. So there's no more space for for the critic. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's that's so amazing. I, I I commend you for how you worked your way through that. When I when I read it, I literally felt it myself, probably not to the degree that you did, but <laughs> I, I could imagine myself in that moment and I've had moments like that. And I, I'm very inspired mm. by by what you just said. And I hope mm. our listeners are too. So Okay, so we're, we're down to the end here. I want to close today, Ayana, by having you talk about your two children, Giovanni and Annabella. So mm. who are these two young humans and how has <laughs> your work bringing the Verdi Eco School into being shaped them and their approaches to life? Mm, these are great questions. <laughs> so Giovanni is the creator Giovanni is the individual who can look at the world and look at something once and create a solution right on the spot. He has an incredible mind that is not constrained by what people have already done. Hmm. His mind goes in a place of what have people not yet done? I want to try that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, he's an incredible risk taker in that way. My daughter, Annabella, is when you. When you look at the world, I've often been told to look for the helpers, mm. like look for those people in the world who are willing to share with you a piece of themselves to help you, not because it helps them, but because they truly derive joy from helping others. That's Annabella. Mm. Annabella is is the individual who will change a community based on her passion 
for helping others. Mm. And I think that this school, Eco School, has done so much to deepen in a really profound way those inherent qualities within them because it allows them to explore it in really personal ways Hmm. where they can connect to others, where they can reinforce the things that they love to do. They can help, they can create, and they will get reinforcement for those things that they're passionate about, Hmm. as opposed to, we don't have time to create or, or we don't have time to think about this really great idea for how to advocate for these people within our community. Mm. We can build entire units of learning and study just around their passions and their purpose. And it has enabled them to be confident individual human beings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, wow. That's awesome. You today, Ayana, have put fuel in my tank for for months. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to be jetting along for a very long time because of this conversation. Thank you so much for, for taking the time today. Thank you for explaining everything that you've explained about your school. And I hope you and your wonderful family and your husband, John, stay safe and healthy in the months and, and years ahead. And again, thank you for this time today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurahara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all the major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. This series is sponsored by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Follow us on Twitter at WSCB Podcast or at Josh Rapoon. Friends, Even as COVID infection numbers decline, stay safe and please get vaccinated. Most of all, bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care.